the rest of you are invited. So hang, on, hang in there with us as we do just a little bit of family business. It's that time of the year where we have our congregational meeting coming up August 30th. August 30th. Only members can vote, and I want as many of you members to be there as can possibly get there. This is where we go over, we look at what God has done for the past year, and uh, he's done a lot. We, we are enjoying our church, aren't we? We having fun with DCC? We are. But it's also a time where I get a chance to tell you what the staff has accomplished and what our priorities are for the coming year. So we've been working for four months as staff and elders to get our ministry plan and our proposed budget, which represents the ministry plan, together. They're now on the website. You can download them. Um, even if you're a visitor, feel free. I don't know why you would. But last year, we had several visitors download them. And the reason I know that is because you sent me emails asking questions. It was pretty fantastic. And it's like, what are you doing? And it was literally from Texas asking me questions. I loved it. It's wonderful. So you can go to dillonchurch.org, and there's a link for our ministry plan and budget. You can download it. Now, this coming Tuesday night, one of the things we do, because a congregational meeting is often a more full-time, because we're also going to be voting on elders and some other things, we give the co congregation an opportunity to come ahead of time and talk to the elders. This Tuesday night is our monthly elder meeting, and it's devoted to uh, a space for you to come. And if, again, you can come as a visitor or as a member, regular attender, doesn't matter to us. So we'd like to invite you to our elder meeting at 6.30 over at the church. The church is just around the corner up here. And uh, come talk to us, and let's have a conversation. It's your church. You're, uh, we just represent you is all we do. What the staff does is we do an analysis twice a year of the health of the church and where we think God is at work. And um, we'll talk about some of those things as part of the ministry plan. So let me invite you to come. So this Tuesday at 6.30 is a time for you to come and interact with the elders and the staff that are there. And then on August 30th, it's your chance to come and vote on it as members. So let me encourage you to do that. <clears throat> uh, one more thing I would like to do. I'd like to pause for a moment, and I'd like to pray for Dave Repture again. For those of you that don't know, uh, Flight for Life had a helicopter uh, crash, and the pilot was killed um, about a month ago. And one of the flight nurses on board, I think he's still in critical condition. And um, he's hanging in there, but he's barely hanging in there. And uh, his life will be, for those of you that have read the articles, you know, burns on what 90 or 95% of his body has said. His life will never be the same if he survives this. And... Um, we as a church have been lifting him up in prayer. Uh, I know his family has been grateful. They've expressed that. So I would like to just pause as a congregation and let's ask for God's mercy for him. Father, I lift up Dave. Uh, Lord, I, I don't even know him, and yet I know a lot about him because of all the conversations I've had with people here in our church that do know him. Lord, I pray that uh, you would be merciful to him. I know he's in a lot of pain, and I know that they're keeping him sedated. I just know the basics. And Lord, I, I don't know what it would be like to go through what he's going through and, and perhaps survive this and come out. But I pray that you would be merciful to him and gracious at the same time. You would show your love to him and you would help him make sense of this. Father, I pray for his parents and his wife, uh, again, asking all those hard questions about life and what's going on and um, what to do. I just pray that you would give them wisdom 
and yet you would be compassionate with them and uh, show them your love as well. Father, thank you for being a God who we can come to, a God who is a living God, a God that we can trust, a God that we can ask these things and have confidence that you will listen to us. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, let's think about where we've come this summer. The series is uh, an engaging God. That's, I think, is written on your bulletin there. And uh, when people think about God, they often put God in one of two camps. He's either kind of a puppet master that pulls all the strings and controls everything. And uh, yes, this is the question of free will and sovereignty and all that. We're not going to answer that question today. But, you know, God's basically controlling everything. Or on the other side, you pick, some people picture God as kind of like a clockmaker. And he, he builds it all and he kind of steps back and lets it go and lets it move on. And he's very little engaged at all. And we've been arguing all summer that neither of those really represent God well, that God is actually very engaged. And I've used the analogy of a parent with a two-year-old. So sometimes you're standing around the corner and you're watching the two-year-old learn him to walk and you're letting the two-year-old do his thing, although you are in charge and responsible, right? And so what's happening with the two-year-old is, is still in accordance with your desires and will as a parent, but you're giving them freedom. And so that's a lot like God with us. He's very engaged. Sometimes we recognize that engagement. It's very clear. Other times when we, uh, when we, we don't sense God around and we wonder where he is, he's still there. He's just around the corner paying attention to you. So here's where we've come. We started in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates. And so right off the bat, we learned something very wonderful about this God. He made all of this right here so we can enjoy it. I love to tell the visitors when I walk around shaking hands that, even if I have a bad sermon, it's no big deal. Just day, start daydreaming and it's worth it. You know, it's a good day. He made all this, but he made it for us and he made it to reveal himself to us. And then from there, we went to Genesis 12 when he talked to Abraham and we said, God blesses. God did not forget when the world crashed and fell and got into a terrible mess. He picks Abraham and he said, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. That's God's strong desire. He loves to lead with blessing. That's what he wants to do. <clears throat> then we went from there to Genesis 18 and 21 and said, God remembers. That's where we looked at the name of Isaac, where God is pictured as a laughing God. So they named their son. He laughs. God laughs. So God is a laughing God. He makes things happen. He defies our expectations and world and then sits back and smiles when we finally, the light bulb clicks and we start enjoying it. So that was in Genesis 18. He remembers. He doesn't forget. And then we went from there to Genesis 22 and said, God tests us. He does. He tests us. He wants our faith to go stronger. And the only way your faith will grow stronger is if it's tested. There is no shortcut. That was the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham offering up Isaac. So God does move into our lives and tests our faith and helps us to grow. Then we went to Exodus 3, where we saw the name of God. We focused on the name Yahweh, I am and said God is very personal. In an ancient world where the gods never introduced themselves, they had to figure out through all kinds of practices, uh, divination practices, what the name of the gods were that they were serving. Our God just comes right out and tells us, here's our name. <clears throat> and I use the example there of um, how you walk up to somebody and I say, hi, my name's Jim, and they go, hi, and they don't tell you their name. There's a kind of a disconnect, isn't there? You've been in that situation. What do you expect them to say? Oh, my name is you know, so-and-so, and you form a connection, a personal connection right away. 
So when God gives us his name, he's being very personal. He's moving into our world. Then we looked at Exodus 6 last week. God redeems. I have heard the groanings of my people, and I have come down to redeem them. And redeeming is just a simple idea that we've got ourselves in a bind or we can't get ourselves out of it, and God steps into our world and gets us out of it. And that's what he did with, the, with Israel in Egypt. He got them out of slavery, and that's what he does with us. Now, in each of these situations, here's what you find. God is very intentional. He's very engaging. He's very uh, purposeful in moving into the lives of people without uh, controlling the puppet strings. So Abraham, when God says to go, in Genesis 12, Abraham could have said no. Couldn't he? He had that choice. Or again, when he was being tested, he could have said no. When he called Moses and said, I want you to go back and talk to Pharaoh. And he says, well, who am I, who am I supposed to tell what your name is? Well, my name is I Am. Moses could have said no. In fact, he tried to do that. He tried to out-argue God. I know we've often done that, many of us, haven't we? And he didn't get away with it. Finally, he said, okay, I'll go. So every step of the way, you find this partnership with God where, yes, he does step in and ask something, but you do have the freedom to say no. He's an engaging God. He's not a puppet master over here where you have no say, nor is he a clockmaker over here where he sits back, and he didn't sit back with Abraham and says, I don't think I'm going to say anything to Abraham. He'll figure it out. I'm just going to watch and see if he gets it. He didn't do that. He engaged himself in their life. And that's really what he does with each of us. That's the model that we see. And with this throughout the summer, as we finish all of these times in the Old Testament with God, we're going to see that he's very involved with us. He is. So today we're in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now let me give you the kind of the picture of the background so you know where we are. They finished the uh, 40 years of wandering, and uh, they're standing on the banks of the river, and they're about to cross over. And so Moses is giving them, in Deuteronomy, his kind of the final, his final thoughts from God and himself on what they need to do. This is where the law that was given in Exodus is repeated again. He reminds them of what the law is. So they're standing right on the banks, and you may remember that Moses is not going with them. He's not allowed to because he blasphemed God. God told him to speak to the rock, and he struck it, and water came out. God still honored it. Water came out, and the people needed the water. But he said, because you blasphemed me, I'm not going to let you enter the promised land. You, uh, you're going to lose your life. So he's standing on the banks. He's giving them his final thoughts and commands from God. This is the passage that we're in. Now, it would be very easy to start with Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. Treasured possession, think about that imagery. You're a king and you own everything, but you have a group, you have a small collection of valuables that are especially important to you. That's what the picture is here. Be easy to start right there and have a wonderful sermon, but I really like the messy part of Scripture. I like the places that, that we scratch our heads and go, how on earth does this represent the God that we know? So I'm going to start in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 7. 
When the Lord, okay, now there the Lord is all caps. This is this one true living God. When this one true living God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Little clue there. Yikes. We're going to go up to battle against seven nations bigger than us. And when this one true God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Wow. Wow. What do you do with this? You don't usually hear sermons on this verse, do you? Destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you. It will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. Cut down their Asherah poles. By the way, that's a pole to... Uh, the goddess Asherot. So they had these idols. Break them, destroy them, burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Does this represent the, the redemptive God that we, we talk about in Christianity? Several of you have heard me say that as long as we focus on the peace, love, and happiness texts, we look an awful lot like several other religions. It's not until we get into this messy, messy stuff that can, we can begin to make sense of it. I'm not going to make sense of this perfectly for you. I'm not going to answer all your questions, but I do have some thoughts to bring to you. Okay? First of all, when God first came to Abraham and he said, I'm going to bless all the nations through you, he adds another little, little phrase in Genesis 12. Those people who bless you, I will bless, and those people who curse you, I will what? Curse. Right off the bat, we learn at the very beginning of God's redemptive plan to rescue the world, we learn something. If you turn against the Lord, you will find yourself fighting an impossible enemy. He will control. If you decide to curse God and turn against him, you've got that freedom. He's going to give it to every single person. You want to shake your fist at God? Go for it. There is a price to pay. And you see that imagery all throughout the Old Testament. You see it, for example, in the sacrifices in Leviticus 1 through 7. The sin offerings. Um, when you sin, you go offer an animal. That's not what it says. It says when you sin unintentionally, you go offer an animal. There's no sacrifice for rebellion. Moses in Numbers asked that question. What about the one, I could just picture him going over the law and saying, hey God, there's no sacrifice for People who sin rebelliously. They shake their fist at you and say, to hell with you, God, literally. What about those people? And God says, uh, cut them off. There's no sacrifice for that, that type of sin. So if you find yourself rebelling, consciously choosing to blaspheme and rebel against the Lord, you're going to find yourself fighting an impossible enemy. That may give us a clue here in this text right here because 
Later on, as we move down into the New Testament, Paul tells us that every human is without excuse. We have everything we need. We have a, to decide to follow this one true God and pursue him or not. That's our choice. What a great, great thing that God has done is to give us choice. And he has given us choice. Now, my theology says, my belief is that God pursues every human on the planet until it's too late and there's no turning back. He goes after every one. We like to express it in Christian terms of what do we do if somebody doesn't hear the gospel? I tend to look at it in the complete opposite. It's yours to lose. Because God's pursuing every human on the planet. There's not a statistical game. People don't have a better chance of hearing about Jesus in our country than they do in another country where there's very few Christians because everyone is without excuse. Everyone has that choice, and God is a gracious God. He is. He pursues every person. Every person has to make that decision, no, or yes, and he'll figure out how to make that work. So right off the bat, we see these nations, they are worshiping everybody but God. So we began to see a principle develop here early in the Old Testament that begins to grow and blossom and flourish when we get into the New Testament, and that is that the people of God are distinctly different than those around them. That's called holiness. It's not because we're better. It's not because we have physically changed. It's because our purpose has changed. If you think about what happened with the temple, you have two glasses of water, two containers of water, and the priest says, this one's holy now. What changed about it? purpose. That's it. It didn't be go from plastic to metal or anything like that. It's function change. That's what makes Christians uniquely different than the rest of the world because our purpose has changed. And what is our purpose now? It's to reflect the glory of the Lord to the world around us. That's what it is. It's to love people. We are to be known by our love. We're to be known by the, as the people that are long-suffering we have lots of patience. We have lots of patience. We work with anybody. We welcome anybody and we love them. And we help them get to a better place. That's what Christians should be known for. We are distinctly different because our purpose is different, not because we're better. You understand the difference? Okay, and you begin to see the seeds of this planted here. But then when he has that language in there, you must destroy them totally. If you have an NIV or a study Bible, you'll notice that they give you all alternative translations. This is a notoriously difficult word to make sense of. Um, does it mean that? In some contexts, it means we renounce something uh, by giving it to, to the Lord, almost as a holy thing. We, we give it to the Lord, that sort of thing, but we renounce it. Maybe that's what he's talking about here because the very next thing he says doesn't make sense if it means kill everybody. That's kind of how we think about it. Don't intermarry. Well, how would you intermarry if you killed them all, right? So not to have contracts with them, not to do business with them. Maybe what he's talking about here in the whole concept of, of separating yourself and bringing about some sense of destruction is like an embargo, like we do with certain countries. We try anyway that if we have a country doing something that we don't agree with, we say, we're not going to sell you our goods and we're not going to buy your goods. That's very damaging to another country, especially if they're smaller, to take away that profit, not to profit from them, not to have any gain from them. Basically, he's saying, have nothing to do with them. It's not a statement that God doesn't care for them. The opposite's true. We have lots and lots of examples in the Bible of God caring for these people. Look at Rahab. 
right after this. He says this, they cross into, across over, and Jericho's the first place they come. And Rahab, the story of Rahab the harlot, she's a Canaanite. He just said, kill all the Canaanites. But there's one Canaanite who stood up and said, wait a minute, I've heard about your God, and uh, I will follow your God. And so what does God do? He protects her and saves her life, doesn't he? God is not a ruthless God that goes out and just kills people. This scripture is often used to show that, to argue that against us. He's not that at all. He does not mind taking action against people that shake their fists and say, I don't want anything to do with you. He doesn't mind getting engaging in their life, just like he engages in our life. So maybe we read or reading into this passage a little bit more. As you move into the other parts of the Old Testament, sometimes they understood this in terms of actual killing and they tried it, and sometimes they didn't, sometimes they ignored it. But you have to understand, the worldview way back here in 1500 B.C., there, thereabouts, that was the way they thought. When you surround a village and you take it, well, first of all, that's a problem. You shouldn't be doing that. But when you do, you're trying to get their goods, their loot. So when you surround a village, a walled village, and you break through the walls, guess what you did? You often killed the men. That way they're, they're no longer a, a power. They're impotent. Sometimes they would pluck out the right eye or cut off the right hand so that can't fight. We actually have examples of that in the, in the Old Testament scriptures. We have examples in the cultural studies as well. So the first thing they did was render the people group impotent. Often, depending on who the nation was, they might take the lives of the older people because they're not going to be worth very much. They would keep the younger people. But you would lose your identity. That's the point. You lost your ethnic identity by being brought into a group that's more powerful than you. By the way, all these nations have disappeared. They're all gone. They all lost their ethnic identity. That's the way it was. And so God is drawing a clear boundary and saying, don't have anything to do with them. Don't make treaties. Now we're talking about concert, uh, uh, we're talking about uh, politics. Okay, don't have treaties with them. Commerce, none of that. But then he goes further and says, destroy every evidence of their gods. Why? Because God is a smart God. And what happens if we keep evidence of re other religions around? We bring it into our religion. We do it today. It's just not with gods. Well, idols. We've talked about that. Money, fame. How do, you, how do you evaluate your spirituality? Is it based on your position in your company? What you've accomplished? How much money you have? Or is it how well you know the Lord Jesus? So even today, it's a threat to us today. So he's introducing this idea right here at the beginning. Separate yourselves from these people. It doesn't mean you don't live with them. It means not being friends with them. Don't be friends with the world. We are to make the gospel attractive so that by loving people, uh, they want to know, why are you doing this? Why is your marriage better than my marriage? By the way, as long as divorce stays the same in the church as it does in the culture, we're losing that voice. We should have the best marriages on the planet. If your marriage is struggling, don't be ashamed of that. Every marriage struggles. Mine struggled. Every marriage struggles. Come talk to us. Let us help you. 
As long as our divorce rate stays the same, we have nothing to say to a world that's falling apart, do we? So that's the beginning. That's the context. For you are a people holy to the Lord, verse 6. Holy to the Lord your God. You have been set apart, but that doesn't mean spatially set apart. It means you've been, you are now different than the rest of the world. You have a different purpose. And that's to reflect the glory of God to a world that's lost. Trying to make sense of everything. They're wandering around. And that's our responsibility, is to reflect that glory. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It's not that Israel was better than the other nations. It's that they had a different purpose. Some of you have seen me do this. Here's God, and he creates a whole ring, a kaleidoscope of nations of all these different ethnic groups, and he chooses one, Israel, to reach the rest. Sometimes the whole argument over election and predestination drives me crazy because the fundamental definition of being chosen, what are you chosen for? So you're in elementary school and, you, and, and uh, you're in PE and the coach says, I want you guys to play dodgeball. So you're a captain and you're a captain and, and you start picking teams. What do you choose the team for? To play volleyball. I mean dodgeball. Right? So what was Israel chosen for? To reach the rest of the world. That's why they were God's special people because he chose them to go reach the rest of us who are Gentiles because he loves us and cares for us. But he goes on from there. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For if you, in fact, were the fewest of all the peoples. You were the smallest nation. You know what he just did with that? He took away our ability to say, look at me, I did it. Of course we did it. We're the most powerful people on the planet. We have the best military there is. We didn't need God. No, he chose the people that were the smallest group. Not only were they a smallest group, they had no training in military strategy. They had no, no training in uh, foreign or domestic policy or diplomacy. They didn't understand economics. All the things that we take for granted because we have statesmen and leaders who help us design systems, they didn't have any of that. So he chose slaves. So they couldn't say, I did it myself. That's why. But it was because the Lord loved you. There it is. It's because the Lord loved you. And he kept an oath. Remember, he never forgets us, does he? He kept an oath. An oath he swore to your ancestors that he, re- that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, and this is an important distinction. It helps us understand the earlier text. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, this one true living God, know that he is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to how many generations? Thousands of generations. He keeps his covenant, his promise of love to a thousand generations to those who love him and, he ke- and keep his commandments. But to those who hate him, get the other side, here we go again. To those who hate him, he will repay them to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay them to their face, those who hate them, hate him. He doesn't say he carries out vengeance for thousands of generations, does he? Do you see the, the, how 
different these two responses are. He shows his love for thousands of generations, but for those who hate him, he just confronts the one person to his face. Numbers are very important in Jewish thinking. They use numbers to communicate things. Saul has killed his thousands. David is ten thousands. They're not saying David killed ten thousand. They're saying David's glory is much, much bigger than Saul. Saul got it and tried to kill him. So when he says God shows his love, his covenant, his promise to thousands of generations, that shows us the very heart of God is to fulfill his promise to love us and be patient and to go after us as much as possible. And when he shows his face, when he shows himself to that one person face to face, who turns against him, it's, it's just a statement of how much God loves us. His love is vastly more important. We love to take that out of the context. He visits the sins of the fathers on three to four generations, doesn't he? We use that phrase a lot. But we forget the very next part of the same sentence. But he shows his loving kindness for thousands of generations. That's the God that we serve. So even here, where he's commanding them to go in, however we interpret that, don't forget that God doesn't care. That's not it at all. That's wrong. He absolutely does care. And when they move into these nations, as these people turn to him, guess what? We see their names recorded in this, in this text right here, which shows us that God is faithful to his promise. It's not true genocide. That's not what he's after. He's after people that will follow him. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God. He's a God you can count on. So even way back in the ancient dark world, 1500 BC, we see him beginning to display what's important. As Christians, we are holy people. We have a different purpose. That's what that means. Our purpose is to love the people around us and to reflect his glory. We are not to be friends with the world. We're not to let the world shape us. It's the other way around. We are to shape the world through love, through care, through the beliefs that we have. We're learning that right there. Father, thank you. Thank you for being such a gracious God. Thanks, Lord. Uh, I admit to you that I wrestle with these texts pretty deeply, the ones that somehow at least on the surface, reflect to me something very different than what I've experienced with you. And I'm grateful for the stories of the Rahabs of the world, which show me that genocide really wasn't what you were after. What you were after were a people that would love you, that you, would, that you could show your covenant, your love to them for thousands of generations and never forget them. Rahab got it. Right after the story, she got it. She knew you to be a merciful God, and she turned to you and you saved her. I'm glad that you're that kind of God. Thank you. Help us, Lord, as a church to, to show that love that we have to the world around us, to our own county, and to our visitors here, Lord. Help them when they return to continue to be faithful in their relationships and to love them as well. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus, because we believe in him. Amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and take the offering. Again, I uh, just want to say thank you for your generosity, all of you. Um, 